within a while. So you're actually going to get me for four weeks. Um, I'm going to be here for four weeks. Matt is over at Southwood and Blake is at Anderson. And this morning, if you're not there already, we're going to uh, be in the book of Malachi. And, you know, you see that, you go, oh, I thought you said you were doing okay. Maybe you're really depressed. We're, <laughs> we're in the minor prophets. I'm, I'm actually not depressed. I'm doing okay. But, the, you know, the, this is the last book of the, the Old Testament. So if you're not even sure where it is, hit Matthew, turn left, one book, Malachi, last minor prophet. And yes, it's a very hard message to God's people, but also it's, it's, it's a really beautiful message in a, in a sense that brings a conviction that refines our love for the Lord. And, uh, you know, in a sense, it's a, it's a message of tough love. You ever heard that phrase? Tough love just has a horrible sound to it, or um, loving discipline, right? Another just kind of nasty-sounding phrase. Uh, discipline never feels like love, right? Even the writer of the Hebrews, he said, no discipline for the moment seems to be joyful but sorrowful. I don't recall my kids ever running up to me when they were little saying, Daddy, Daddy, thank you for your loving discipline, right? Thank you for this painful reminder of how much you love me. No, I mean, in the moment, they're thinking... Dad, you don't love me, and I'm pretty sure I don't love you, right? I mean, that's, that's how it feels in the moment. And so Malachi actually starts this message from the Lord with the Lord saying, I have loved you. And he's about to deliver a really difficult, challenging message, so he starts with the word, I have loved you. And it's important to note that uh, it's actually in the Hebrew perfect tense, which means I have loved you, I am loving you, and I always will love you. I have loved you. I have loved you. And then people hear it and they go, mm. I mean, just like our kids do, just like we do sometimes with the Lord. I don't know about that, Lord. Okay, let's read Matthew chapter 1, or Malachi, excuse me, Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see all of this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, the Lord says to them, I love you, and they say, ah... It doesn't feel like you love us. I'm going to give you four reasons why they doubt the Lord's love, but I think it's really consistent with uh, our response as well, or maybe even if we think about our kids. Uh, the first is this. We doubt God's love when our expectations are unfulfilled. Okay, we doubt God's love when, when the circumstances of our life just don't, they don't play out like we expected them to do so. Now, in my experience of life is that uh, expectations are kind of funny things, we all have them, but we often don't know that we have them until something doesn't happen that we didn't know we expected to happen. And then we go, oh, that's not what I expected. Right? I remember when I graduated from college, uh, I had an unknown expectation. I thought, well, you, what happens is I will graduate from college and then I'll get married. And then I didn't. I graduated and I, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have any prospects. And I didn't actually get married until I was almost 31. I'm like, whoa, that was not how I expected my life to work out. And then I didn't know it until after being married, but I had this expectation that what happens is uh, you get married and then the husband and wife decide we're going to have kids and then nine months later they have a kid 
And so we made this decision that we were going to have kids, and then we didn't. And then we, we waited and we waited and we waited for four years. Um, we just struggled and battled with infertility. And that's when I realized, okay, that, that was not what we expected to happen. And in that, the course of that, you, you wrestle internally and with the Lord and say, Lord, I thought you were going to do this and you didn't. And I, and I think in my mind, I thought I had control over this. And if I needed God's participation, he would just do what I wanted him to do or what I expected him to do, and then he didn't. And so, you know, you kind of wrestle, well, is this an issue of, of that you don't love me or an issue of your character? Are you not good? Are you not able? Are you not strong? I mean, we all wrestle with things like that. In Malachi's day, they were, they were wrestling with unfulfilled expectations. They're, they're back in the land, but they're not experiencing the prosperity physically, financially. They thought they would. They're, instead, they're, they're suffering. They're still... There's still uh, enemies in the land and their crops aren't yielding fruit and their expectations aren't fulfilled. And they say, Lord, I don't know. You say you love us, but it doesn't feel like you love us. So let me give you a little historical context. I'm going to unpack this a little bit further. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually back up a bit further before that 586 BC um, and then kind of move into the timeline. Uh, you recall that Israel went into the promised land with Joshua. So Joshua brought them in. They uh, waged warfare in the north, and they conquered the Philistines in the north, and then they went south, and they basically removed most of their enemies. There were still some enemies in the land, but they took occupation of the promised land. Uh, Ten tribes, two tribes stayed on the other side of the Jordan River, and uh, they went through this cycle once they were in the land where they would worship the Lord, and then they kind of forget about the Lord, and they'd worship the idols of the peoples who were living around them, then God would discipline them, they would repent, God would rescue them with a judge or deliverer, and then they'd kind of go through the cycle again. They're going through the cycle, and finally they're like, look, you know, we'd, we'd be all well and good if we could just have a king like all the nations around us. So God said, all right, I'm going to give you what you asked for, and he sent them Saul, right? Samuel anointed Saul, and um, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was just amazing, awesome, and he turned out to be a failure because he didn't have character, didn't really love the Lord. And so Saul was removed, and David put a man after his own heart. An, an imperfect man by, I mean, by every measure, but a man who loved the Lord. And when God brought conviction into his life for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder and the census, he always responded with repentance. And so God really expanded uh, the, the influence in the kingdom through David. Uh, David had uh, several sons, but Solomon he named to be his successor. Remember, Solomon was exceptionally wise, but he didn't practice what he preached, right? So uh, he, he said lots of wonderful things, but he didn't, he didn't do the things that he told everyone else they should do. So he uh, turned out to be a pretty materialistic guy. He uh, built lots of uh, palaces for himself and all kinds of storage grains and collected horses and chariots and foreign alliances. In particular, he was... Uh, uh, you know, collected wives, so he had like hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. The result, he had lots of kids, and he was a really terrible dad. Right? He was a really terrible dad. Um, he ended up turning his kingdom over to Rehoboam, his son, and Rehoboam was a complete fool. Um, Rehoboam, the people came to Rehoboam, and they said, look, uh, your dad taxed us right, to build all these things. It was oppressive, and now we're just asking that you ease up a little bit. And Rehoboam said, well, I'll take that into consideration. So he went to the older, wiser counselors, and they said, that's a good word. Reduce the taxation burden on the people. And he said, okay, let me go talk to my buds, right? <laughs> he goes, talks to his young friends, and they say, Psh, no way, man. Increase the taxation. You show them who's king, 
right? You tell him that you're way tougher than your dad was any day. And so he goes back and he says to the people, I'm going to listen to my young friends and I'm going to tax you guys like crazy. And they say, okay, we're out. And the kingdom split. Ten tribes went to the north. And if you look at the biblical literature after that point in time, they're called Israel. Two tribes stayed in the south with the king and they're called Judah. So the kingdom was split. That's a period of divided monarchy, right? And we're, we're right about coming to that period of divided monarchy because what happened in the north is they never had a single good king, right? Every king was idolatrous. And so God warned them through the prophets over and over and over again, right? turn from your idolatry, just worship me. And they didn't. So eventually he sent the nation of Assyria, 722, the northern tribes were taken away into exile. Assyrians left a few people in the land and then they imported other foreign people they intermarried with the Jews, and that's where the Samaritan people came from, right? In the south, they had a few good kings right, who would lead the people in revival and they'd worship the Lord again, but then they would follow after the pattern of the northern kingdom and they'd become idolatrous and God'd say, look, I, I, I showed you what happens if you're idolatrous. I'm warning you, I don't want to take you off the land. You're supposed to be a light to the nations because you worship me. And so they'd go through a cycle of, revival, and then they become idolatrous again, and eventually God said, uh, you're going to go into exile as well. And so the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into exile. There are actually uh, three exiles. Uh, King of Babylon came in 605, 597, and 586 BC. The last exile there, 586 BC, he took a group of people away, but then he also destroyed Jerusalem, and he tore down the temple. And while the people are in exile, God sent them prophets like Isaiah, and said, even though you have sinned and you've rejected me, I haven't rejected you. I love you and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to the land. And I'm going to forgive your debt and I'm going to give you prosperity in the land and you're going to have protection from your enemies. And so what happened actually in 539 BC is by this point in time, right, the, the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And a Persian king, Cyrus, said to the Jews, you can go back. Or you can read his decree at the end of Second Chronicles or at the very beginning of the book of Ezra. So you can go back and you can rebuild your temple and I'm even going to give you some resources and I want you to worship the Lord and I want you to even make sacrifices for me. So the people returned. There are actually three exiles or three deportations and three returns. They went back and they laid the foundation of the temple in 536 and everyone rejoiced. And then they realized it was going to be hard work. And they looked at the foundation, and they're like, it's never going to look like Solomon's temple. And there were enemies in the land that were attacking them and discouraging them, and they became apathetic and afraid, and they stopped building. And so God sent them two of the other minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah stirred up the people to build again and to give their best to the Lord. And so they started working again in 520, 515. They finished the temple by this point in time, there was another king, Artaxerxes, and he had a, man, a Jewish man in his court named Nehemiah, and he said, Nehemiah, I understand that you're grieving over your city. Go back. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. And so uh, Nehemiah went back, and he began to rebuild the wall, and he was uh, bringing revival to the people. Uh, but then he left, and the people became apathetic again, and they fell back into sin because they were frustrated. Right? They were back in the promised land. The temple's been rebuilt, 
But it doesn't look as majestic as Solomon's temple. There's no gold in it. There's no silver. They're still surrounded by foreign armies. They're under the domination of the Persians, and they have the Egyptians in the south threatening them. They've actually got uh, enemies living inside of their land. Their crops aren't yielding fruit. And they say, why should we give God our best? He's not coming through for us. Right? And they, they get into this, this cycle of apathy and withholding their love for the Lord. And so God sends to them Malachi. And Malachi delivers a message. And the message is this. I've loved you. And the people say, how have you loved us? It doesn't feel like you've, you love us. Um, you made promise to, promises to us, but we haven't seen all of those promises fulfilled. And you know, we all, we all will struggle with this at some point in time. You may, you may not even know what expectations you have in your heart until that, that moment when it doesn't happen. You're like, wait, God, are you not good? God, are you not able? God, are you, do you really care about me? God, do you really love me? And it, you know, it may be you know, a level of, of material and financial prosperity that you expected you'd have, and now it's not happening, or it's not happening as fast as you thought it would, or maybe it's your health. You expected to have perfect health, and you're not. You don't have perfect health. Or uh, perhaps it's a relationship that you thought would begin or you thought would heal, and it's not. And in that moment, you have to wrestle through, um, Lord, I have this expectation, but you tell me you love me. Well, will I believe you? And will I look for the evidence of your love in a different place? Okay, that's the first reason why we are tempted to doubt God's love. The second is when we disregard our own responsibility. I'm, I'm like 99% sure that I didn't get cancer because of unconfessed sin. Okay? I'm 99% I'm, I'm sure. It's, is it possible? Sure that I did something and this is the result. But I'm, you know, I examined my heart. I don't think there's unconfessed sin and God said, all right, I'm going to zap him. You know, I'm going I'm to get him with that cancer. Um, I will say there have been periods of my life where I kind of had to work through that theology. I remember when I was in high school and playing some basketball and I sprained my ankle. And as, even as I was coming down and in pain, I began thinking, what is my sin that God allowed <laughs> me to sprain my ankle? You know, because, uh, you know, that's just kind of how your mind works. And the fact is, there have been periods in my life where the the negative circumstances that I'm experiencing are a result of the choices that I've made. That's just true. That just happens. Not always, but sometimes. And what's happening here in Malachi's day is that the Lord's saying, look, the reason that you're struggling and suffering is because of the choices that you're making, but you're living in denial about your own responsibility. And you're not acknowledging, this is not about me. And this is not about me being unfaithful to fulfill my promises. This is about you choosing to run away from me. So let me give you a little bit more context here, if I can. Um, a few observations. The first is this. The, the name Malachi literally means my messenger. Right? Malachi's name means my messenger. In other words, what Malachi is about to say is not his own message. It's a message from the Lord. Second is this. He's uh, delivering an oracle. Literally in Hebrew, it's a burden. Right? It's not just a, it's not a light message. It's a heavy message. And, and Malachi uh, doesn't want to say it, but he has to say it. But he has to get this off of his chest. Third observation is this. The message is to the people of God, not against the people of God. Right? God starts out saying, I've loved you. Because he's about to say something hard to them. And he wants them to remember something. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Right? I'm for you. I'm not against you. 
So the context, if you read Malachi, is actually the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, this week, if you would, just take a few minutes and read through Malachi. It'll take you like five minutes. It's a super short book. If you want to get a little more context, read the book of Nehemiah, because it's set in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10, right? Nehemiah arrives, and he wants to rebuild the city walls, but he notices also uh, that there, there's a lot of social and spiritual decay. Uh, in particular, the people, uh, the Jewish people have married people in the land, and the issue is not... Um, it's not that they're, they're, uh, he's worried about interracial marriages, but interfaith marriages. So when these men marry the foreign women, the foreign women don't even speak Hebrew. They, they don't worship the Lord. They can't read the Hebrew scriptures. So they raise up their children to worship other gods. And so the people are now back in the land, but the next generation doesn't even know the Lord. right? And so Nehemiah challenges them. And they make promises. They say, okay, we're not gonna, we won't marry the people of the land. We won't, we won't, we won't destroy the next generation. Uh, they're not honoring the Sabbath. Right? God gave them a Sabbath as a, as a gift. He said, look, if you, you work hard six days, I'm going to give you a day of rest. You don't have to be like the nations around you who are just slaving away. I will provide for you. Even if you work less, I will provide for you. Trust me. But they were working and working and working. And finally, Nehemiah says, hey, this, this is not appropriate. So they stop. They reserve the Sabbath day for the Lord, and they begin to purify their worship. Right? They make promises. But then uh, Nehemiah leaves, and he goes back to the court. He leaves Jerusalem, and all the promises are broken. So what you see in Nehemiah 13 is uh, their, their, their worship is, they're not paying attention to it. They're breaking the Sabbath again. Uh, they're entering into marriages with the people of the land. Their children are not worshiping the Lord. And so Malachi comes along, and he addresses uh, two of the problems. Apparently in Malachi's day, they finally were observing the Sabbath, but it's just, it's just legalism for them, right? They're just going through the motions. Their worship isn't from a pure heart. As we'll see in a, a week or two, they are worshiping, but they're bringing the dregs. Right? They're, they're bringing the afterthought. And now they're um, breaking their marriages with their Jewish wives in order to go back again and marry the women of the land. And Malachi says, look... <laughs> The reasons you're suffering right now is because you're running away from the Lord and you're not listening to his voice of conviction, right? And instead, you're looking at your circumstances and you're blaming me, right? You're not taking responsibility. You're shifting the blame instead to me, which if I'm honest with myself, I, I have that propensity as well, right? Which uh, I would say... Um, I kind of come by that honestly because I'm the baby of the family, right? I have no, my, my sister's older, which means um, if my parents had to go out, they would leave her in charge, which means her, he, she's responsible even for the things that I would do. So I could get away with stuff because they would hold her responsible for my behavior. So I remember one time in particular, my parents left, and I went down into our basement, and I was uh, whittling with one of my knives, and I was told, don't, you, you know, don't use your knives when mom and dad are gone, but I was doing it anyway, and I put a big cut in my finger. It's bleeding like crazy. I'm like, ah, I ran upstairs, cut off my finger, ah, you know, I'm just going crazy. And my sister was really scared, not because I was bleeding, but because she was going to get in trouble, right? Because sure enough, my parents came home like, yeah, she wasn't watching me. <laughs> yeah, just kind of slide it over, right? You, you, you understand that mentality? Let, let me give you an illustration of this. This is a crazy story, but uh, a few years ago, there was a lady in Canada, she was working for, it was the Sutton Realty Group, and they had an office party, I think it was a Christmas party, she got drunk at the Christmas party, 
So uh, drove her on her way home and had a, had a wreck. Right? And then sued her office, sued the company for the wreck that she'd had because she got drunk at the office party, even though they had offered to get her a cab. She said no. They'd offered to and pay for it. They'd offered to put her up in a hotel room, and they would pay for it. She said no, got in her car, drove it, had a wreck, sued them, and in the Canadian court, she won $300,000 worth of damages. <laughs> I go, oh, Canada, you're crazy. I mean, but, but see if this sounds familiar. Adam, what have you done? The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And then I ate. Right? Since that moment in time, that's just something in our hearts. We want to look first to someone else as responsible, even sometimes shifting the blame off to the Lord. But here's the principle. We can't see God clearly if we don't look at ourselves honestly. We, we cannot see God clearly if we're not willing to look at ourselves honestly. So conviction of sin from the Lord, is, it's actually a gift. The Lord speaks into our lives sometimes, and he says, that's sin. And, and you know it's the voice of the Lord when it's very specific. Uh, Satan is very generic. He says things like, you stink. You're a ter- terrible person. And then in our psychology, we personalize that. We say, I'm a terrible person. I'm worthless. Right? That's, that's blanket, generic sense of guilt and shame. That's, that's the voice of your enemy. The voice of the Spirit says... Uh, you lied to your spouse. It was, a, it was a small lie, but you didn't tell the whole truth. You lied to your parent. You were jealous. Uh, you were angry, and you were unwilling to forgive that person at that point in time. That's how the Spirit speaks really specifically, really directly to our hearts. And in that moment, confession means that we say the same thing. Literally in Greek, confession is to say the same thing. God says, that moment of jealousy of that person for that thing, that's sin. And we say, yes, Lord. So if I can give you a metaphor, a confession is like allowing the Lord to take off our glasses and he cleans the lens and we put them back on. We go, oh, we look back in the mirror. That, that's, that's who I was in that moment. And that's who God is. And this is also who I am in God's sight. That he loves me even when I sin. He loves me even when I fail. He's loyal to me at all times. But he wants me to be pure so he can give me his best. So sometimes we doubt God's love because we disregard our own responsibility. We're living in denial, and we just need to have that moment where we listen to the Spirit and we confess our sin. Third, we doubt God's love when we overlook the evidence of his love. And so what the Lord will do when he says, I love you, the people say, "Eh, I don't know about that. He said, well, let me point out to you a couple ways that I've demonstrated already my love for you. The first is in his gracious choice. Read with me chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The Lord declares, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now, what, is it, what does this verse mean? What, what does it mean to, uh, to hate and love? Um, the, these words in, in both Hebrew and Greek, they can refer to, to emotion or feeling, but not always. Right? Sometimes they refer, in a sense, rather to uh, choice right? or priority. 
So let me give you an example. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying that we need to feel uh, emotional hatred or antipathy toward father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters? No, I mean, at other places he said, he said, you know, love your, your wife and your children, and, but also even love the stranger, love the alien, love the enemy, right? What is in the Sermon on the Mount, um, in a sense, true righteousness? Well, I'm loving and forgiving. Jesus would also say as he's hanging on the cross to his beloved disciple, the one toward whom he had great affection, he'd say, John, this is your mother. Say to his mother, mother, this is your son, right? So he's not saying have emotional hatred or antipathy towards someone. Love in a context like this is, it's a choice to prioritize. Saying, put me above all else. So when he says, Jacob, I've, I've loved, he's saying, Jacob is the one I've chosen. I chose Jacob so that he would be the channel of blessing to all nations. And why did I choose Jacob? Because Jacob was so much better and stronger and faster and better looking than anybody else I could have chosen? No. In fact, uh, Jacob really was not a great guy. Right? You remember what his name meant? The name Jacob meant? Anybody know? Deceiver, right? His name meant deceiver. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Right? He was named deceiver. So his father, Isaac, imagine Isaac na- Isaac's name means laughter. And Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, they had all kinds of uh, infertility for years. And now all of a sudden she has, a, she has children and they hand Isaac his baby boy. And he's like, ah, this is awesome. And he looks at him, he goes, oh no, right? What are you going to call him? Uh, I don't know, something like liar or cheater, deceiver. I mean, just imagine, imagine that. And Rebecca's going, no, name him Noah, name him Abraham, name him. Uh, I'm going to call him liar. I'm going to call him cheater. Well, I mean, what did the kid, what did the baby look like that he would just immediately know? I mean, God had to speak, right? Wow, we got to call this one liar, cheater, deceiver, which is what he ended up being. It ended up being true to his nature. All right, so God didn't, Choose him over Esau because he was better. It was a gracious choice, right? It was a gracious choice. And in fact, God would remind the entire nation that they weren't chosen because they were better than anyone else. It was just God's grace. So it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, The Lord did not set his love on you, right? And how do you define set his love? Or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewest of all the peoples. I didn't choose you because you were more in number or more powerful or even more righteous. In fact, your family came from Abraham who was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldeans. My choice of you is an act of grace. And so he reminds the people in Malachi's day, remember, Jacob I've chosen. Jacob didn't deserve it. Second, he says, remember that I have protected you and I've preserved you. Read with me again, verse two. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So if if love was a choice, not an emotional response from the Lord, but it was a choice to bless and use Jacob as a channel for blessings, for all nations. Hate was his choice not 
to choose Esau and make Esau the channel of blessing. So for Jacob's part, he can't claim that he deserved it. But Esau has to admit that he was actually responsible for not being the channel of blessing. Okay, let me, let me unpack this for you. Now, it's difficult, if not impossible, to untether the concepts of um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? That's, a, that's a, a quagmire, mental quagmire that we wrestle with, but we never fully understand. Um, God in his sovereignty chose Jacob. Jacob didn't deserve it, but God chose him. Esau was the firstborn. So he was, by right, the one given all the rights of the firstborn, which means all the promises made to his father would transfer to him, including being the channel of blessing for all the nations. That's the birthright. But you remember what happened? Why, why did Esau not end up with the birthright? Was that God's fault? The answer is no. Remember one day uh, Esau was out in the field because he was a hunter, and he came back, he hadn't gotten anything all day, and he hadn't brought along any food or provisions, so he goes into the tent of, of Jacob, and Jacob has made this really yummy stew, and Esau smells it, and he goes, give me a bowl of that stew. And Jacob says, I'd love to give you a bowl of that stew on one condition. All you have to do is just give me your birthright. And Esau was a, a man who was just, in a sense, really controlled by his appetites. Literally and figuratively, he's like, what do I care with my birthright? It's not of any value to me if I just starve. Sure, give me a bowl of soup. Eats the soup, walks out. And it says in Genesis, he despised the status of being firstborn. He didn't care about it. Now, was that also part of God's sovereign plan? Yes. Was it his responsibility? Yes, it was. It ends up creating incredible conflict between Jacob and Esau. Jacob actually has to leave for many years. He eventually comes back. The brothers reconcile. But uh, if you look at the history of these nations, right, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. The Jews or Israel, descendants of Jacob. And they were in conflict for their entire history. In fact, when Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, the most direct route to the promised land was through the territory of the Edomites. And so they got right to the edge of their territory and they said, can we walk through? And the Edomites said, if you put one foot on our land, we will destroy you. And they said, well, remember, we're brothers. And we'll stick to the path. We won't go into your fields and eat your, your crops. We won't drink your water. If we take anything, we'll pay for it. And they said, don't come through our land. And they got all their army together at the border, ready to destroy Israel. Later on, they would fight and they would attack Israel. And they would attempt to destroy Israel. And they weren't the only nation. The, the Amalekites tried to destroy them. The Philistines tried to destroy them. The northern kingdom went into exile from the Assyrians. The southern went into exile from the Babylonians. And God says, have you noticed you're still here? Right? It's really genuinely a miracle and a demonstration of my love for you, that you haven't destroyed yourselves. Turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Really important book, a really important verse in the book of Malachi. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Why are you here? Because God doesn't change. Why do you know that you have life that lasts forever? Because you're so faithful to God? every moment of every day? No. We have the confidence that we have security before God because of his faithfulness to us. Israel exists, why? Because God protected, God preserved, and it's a genuine miracle that they exist to this day. 
After all that they've suffered and after how many millions have been killed, God says, but I've preserved your nation. Right? So how do we know that God loves us? Particularly when we're in moments where we're suffering. I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says this. But God demonstrates or he manifests or he proves his own love toward us in this. Okay? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, from all of eternity, God knowing um, every fault you would have and every fear you would have and every time you'd fail and every time you'd rebel against him, he said, you know what? I'm going to send my son to die for each and every one of them. I love them that much. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't say, hmm, let me see how well they do and if they clean up their act just enough, then I'll say, yeah, you can have life in me. No, instead, knowing and being more aware even than we are of every deed that we've done and every thought that we've had and every motivation of our heart and every word that we've spoken, God said, you're so valuable to me, I'll give the life of my son. Right? And that's the beauty of the gospel. It, just like Jacob, um, we don't deserve it. It's not because we're, we're, we're better than anyone else. It's just purely an act of God's grace. And so at some point in time, every single one of us has to say, God, thank you. Yes. I mean, I don't, I don't know some of you, and it may be that um, maybe you're, just, you're visiting. Maybe you have a long experience in church. Maybe you've, you've heard for a long time Jesus died for the sins of the world. But the message is this. He, it's not just that he died for the sins of the world, but he, he died for your sins in particular. So at some point in time, you personally, individually, you have to say, yes, Lord. Lord, thank you. I realize that, that I've done things in my life, and it may be actions or words or even just motives, thoughts in my heart, anger or bitterness or jealousy. But all of that you paid for. And the moment that you believe God removes that debt of sin forever, forever, even knowing the future sins that you haven't committed that you might do this afternoon, <laughs> Jesus said, I've paid for that as well. And you're safe and secure because I, the Lord, do not change. And you belong to me. So sometimes we don't, we don't see God's love because we're not, in a sense, looking for it in the right place. We're looking for it just in our circumstances. But what he's saying is, even in spite of your circumstances, some of which maybe you brought on yourself, some of which are just part of living in a fallen world, I've proven my love for you by giving you my son. Now let me give you one more. Fourth reason is this. We doubt God's love when we fail to look beyond ourselves. Read with me again in verse 5, chapter 1. The Lord says, you will see all of this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, the Lord is saying, um, I'm, I'm doing something amazing in the world. And it's not just about you, but I, I want it to be through you. God chose Israel so that they would be a light to the nations, so that they would live a really different life. And the nations around would look in and they'd say, wow, their God must be really remarkable and amazing. Look at what he's done in the life of his people and through their lives, right? So they'd be a light to the nations. And so the Lord in his kindness, again, gives them tough love, right? It's, it's loving discipline. He says, I'm doing something great in the world and I want to do it through you and I don't want you to miss out. Therefore, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to point out these, these areas of rebellion because they're dimming the light that you could be to the nations. And so even the circumstances of suffering that they brought on themselves, God says, that's a gift to you so that you will live well and live wisely and participate in my plan for all of the nations. And I don't want you to miss out on that. I just love you too much. I love you too much to, to wreck your own life and destroy yourself. So I'm going to have to speak truth. 
It's going to be tough love. It's going to be loving discipline. But I want you to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Now, you may have um, gotten to this point in the year where you know, we're halfway through 2019, and maybe you're just crushing it. You're like, man, it's a great year. I'd say, I, I pray that 2019 just is, the whole thing is an amazing year for you. You may be, oh, I'm kind of limping along. <laughs> we're halfway through, and, but it's been a tough year. I, I want you to hear the, the word from the Lord to you this morning is this. It's real simple. I have loved you. I've loved you in the past. I'm loving you now, and I will always love you. I am for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your faithfulness is great. And I pray that you'd allow us to lift our eyes off of just our circumstances. Sometimes they're they're rich and fulfilling, and sometimes they're difficult. But I'm reminded of Paul's words where he said after being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked, So momentary light afflictions are working for us in the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, I pray, Father, that we would uh, fix our hope on eternity. I pray that even in the midst of our suffering, that you use our suffering not just in our own lives to produce character, but also as part of our testimony, that we could proclaim to those around us that we know our God is faithful even when we're suffering. And we know our God is faithful even when we're blessed. And I pray, Father, uh, for this body of believers, that we would be just a bright and beautiful light in the community. I pray that many would be drawn to your son, Jesus, through us as we cling to your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, don't forget, uh, next week we're going to be getting in the next few verses in Malachi. Again, five minutes, that's all it'll take you to read through the whole book, and uh, we'll see you next week.